This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Philippians. Philippians. Now last week we had, last week was a, I want to say a lengthy introduction into this new series of teachings, but I think we covered pretty thoroughly why we want to go into it. And we're going back and forth, it seems, between New Testament and Old Testament. We spent several months in Proverbs. That was a blessing. But we want to get back to where the rubber meets the road in the New Testament. And as I was looking at, I have this deal up on my wall at home that lists all of the books of the Bible, and I have them broken out by category, even though the Old Testament has the majority of books in it. There is no category more abundant in number than the letters of the apostles. And it's mainly from the letters of the apostles that we build our understanding of how to live the Christian life. And that's why we sort of gave this series of teachings the unofficial or the, uh, well, I guess it would be the unofficial title of this series of teachings is this is how we do it. This is how we do it. This is the let, these are the letters of the apostles to the churches. They're not all from one man, but they're actually come from four different people. Primarily, we have the letters of Paul. There's also the letters of Peter, of James, and of Jude, and of John. So five different people, actually. And so this is where we're at. And we jumped into Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, not because it's the first in order of appearance. Obviously, it's not. Right after the book of Acts, we run right into Romans. But we're going to Paul's letter to the Philippians because of its content. It's a very upbeat letter. It's been described as a friendship letter between the Apostle Paul and a particularly beloved church. And there are within it about 16 different references to joy and rejoicing. It's a very upbeat letter, even though Paul wrote it in a state of, though he doesn't go into specifics, he he wrote it in a state of bonds. So whether he was in prison at the time or under house arrest, Paul was uh, jailed effectively at the time that he wrote this letter. Yet that did not quench his fire and his joy. And so in this state of mind and in this state of being, he wrote to the church at Philippi. And so let's go ahead and jump into it. Now, last week we only got a few verses in and that was fine. We got to where we wanted to get to, ending with verse 6, which was the primary lesson of last week where he says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, even as it is meet for me or fitting for me to think this of you all, because I have you in mine heart, inasmuch both in my, as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. What's he saying there? The same grace that I, Paul, have received, you have received. The same blessing, the same same touch of God upon my life that I have received, you have received. Now, he wasn't saying that they were all apostles. This was something we explained in the earlier Bible study today. Not everyone's an apostle. I know there are some groups that say that all Christians are apostles. That really is not true. That's not biblical. An apostle is a specific 
biblically ordained office within the ministry. And that's explained in some detail uh, elsewhere in the New Testament in the letters of Paul. But all believers are in fact witnesses. All believers are in fact children of God born again by that same Spirit that brought you and I into the new birth and into the faith. Amen? And so we are all His children and united by His blood, united in His blood. But he says, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. What did he mean in the bowels of Jesus Christ? We're familiar with that language. It's, uh, it was a way, we, we find it often enough in the Bible. Bowels referring to affections, not referring to uh, digestion, obviously. That's a no-brainer. He said in the bowels of Jesus Christ, in the affections of Jesus Christ. Next paragraph, he says, And this I pray, beginning of verse 9, And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now, does this sound familiar at all? Knowledge and judgment. And, and they all kind of tie in together, not so much with, they're not the same as wisdom, although we had this lengthy study on the subject of wisdom over the past few months, but tying into other things throughout the Word that all speak of growing in grace and knowledge and the importance of judgment being the right dividing between right and wrong in the minds of believers. And again, as we've said so many times before, that's what many, many, many Many believers in the modern age, in the modern day, lack is this thing called judgment. And part of that, I think, is because of the word itself, because it, it gets uh, synonymized, it gets crossed up with, uh, with condemnation and all of that, because we hear, we hear phrases like judgment day and the day of judgment and the day of wrath and all of that. But when we come across it in the context like this, it's not referring to that. It's referring to rightly discerning right from wrong. To judge rightly between right and wrong. That's judgment. It's a faculty that we must, all of us as believers, possess. Check this out, okay? And this might sound a little bit like I'm patting ourselves on the back uh, patting ourselves as, as living in this day and age, this information age, right? Where we have the internet and we have libraries and information is readily available, readily had, cheaply had even, okay? But I'm not really trying to pat ourselves on the back. Gone are the days, and I've said this before, gone are the days where people just swallow what the preacher says whole without ever analyzing it, consider, uh, considering it, or even fact-checking it against the Word. And that's fine. It's a two-edged sword, but we're happy to rise to that occasion. We're not content in our church to just say something from the pulpit and then have a cultural expectation that everybody will just buy it lock, stock, and barrel. We have to develop a faculty of judgment. We have to develop the faculty of judgment. And learning how to judge for ourselves between right and wrong. Now you know the source text that I use here, the Reverend DeRyder and I use here, that is the Bible only. We don't rely on other texts. We might borrow from other texts as supporting quotes or something like that to reinforce what we're teaching from the Word. But what we mold our life after is the Word of God Himself, the Word itself. 
And so he says here, and this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Verse 10 reinforces what we were just saying, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. What's the purpose of it all? That we may grow, that our love may grow, that it may abound more in knowledge, that it may abound more in all judgment so that we can approve things that are excellent. What does he mean by that? Again, that's not language that, even though it's English, it's not a way of speaking that we're all very accustomed to. What does he mean that we may approve things that are excellent? That we may, as individuals, not, not as saying, oh, well, the pastor said that this is a really good thing, and so I'm just gulp, I'm just going to swallow that whole. No, but so that we, as individual, knowledgeable, discerning Christians, may rightly discern things that are excellent from things that are faulty, ungodly, unclean, so to speak, and that shouldn't be within our lives. It's about our own individual personal development as Christians. That's what he's pushing here. So Paul, here in his letter to the Philippians, the language that he's using, we're in chapter 1, Paul was not trying to create a cult of mindless followers. It was never his intention. He was trying to develop the minds of these Gentile believers. And man, who better to do it than the Apostle Paul? Who better qualified by the grace of God than the Apostle Paul with his, with his unique and singular understanding of the law of Moses and how it meshed into the big picture in the Christian worldview and in the truth of Jesus Christ. So he says it. We'll read it one more time and go on. And this I pray, verse 9, and this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Trying to get them to develop their, their minds armed by the Word of God that they may be able to judge right from wrong individually themselves. Why? So that they may be sincere, verse 10, and without offense till the day of Christ. It puzzles me when there's a believer, someone who is ostensibly a believer, who has no hunger at all, who has no appetite whatsoever for the Word of God. It's troubling. It's troubling. And the reason for that we find right here in these first two verses in the, in the one, two, three, fourth paragraph of this chapter. <clears throat> The goal is to be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Being filled, verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. So this whole paragraph is kind of one long sentence, but it gives us sort of an encapsulated view of what the goal of all of it is. So he wants us, he wants our love to abound yet more and more in knowledge, that takes knowledge of the word, and in all judgment. That's the application of the word. That's the application of the word of God to your life and the things that you encounter. All right, well, I'm facing a situation I've never faced before. What's the right way to handle this? Okay, well, the very first thing that a person ought to do is not default to what mom and dad said, because what mom and dad said might be wrong. 
especially if they weren't Christians, really particularly if they weren't Christians. Maybe it was right, maybe it was wrong. What we ought to default to is the Word. It's the Word. If there are two pillars upon which the Christian life must stand or must be upheld, this is one of them. The other one is the Spirit. Because the Spirit grants us discernment and helps us to refine and improve our judgment. So we encounter a situation in our life, maybe it's a new situation or it's an old situation, but it's we're facing it for the first time as a believer because there's always that transition period when a person first comes into the faith. They've faced a situation before lots of times, but they've always handled it the sinner way, you know? Which is a number of different ways that are not necessarily good, okay? But but then now they're they're new in the faith. They're a Christian. They're a young believer. And so now they're encountering this situation for the first time since they've been born again. What should I do? Well, what does the Word say that I should do? But how can we consult the Word in our minds if we have not armed it with the Bible? Um, hundreds of years ago, I forget exactly how many, how long ago? It was in the 1600s? Whenever John Bunyan... No, it wasn't the lumberjack guy. That was a different Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And one of the things that he brings out in that story is one believer was speaking to another after they had come through a particularly difficult or tricky situation. The one believer said to the... I know it sounds like a joke. But the one believer said to the other, "'Tis a good thing that you lodged said Scripture in your mind." so that the Holy Ghost could bring it to your remembrance when you needed it. That's a bullseye right there in practical Christianity. The more Scripture you know, the better armed you are and the better equipped you have made the Spirit of God within you to bring to remembrance what He has said. It's one reason why good music is so important in the Christian life. Because a lot of times where you have a person who isn't as prone or as good at remembering Scripture by reading Scriptures, then but they do remember the songs that they've been singing in church. And so that's one way that... It's not a substitute, okay? So don't get me wrong. Oh, I don't read any Bible. I just listen to Christian music. No, 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 no. No, that's not a good way to go. But some of the hymns that we've sung in church, some songs that you've heard that are good songs serve to bring to remembrance key passages of Scripture in a time when you need them most. I wrote a song once. Can you believe that? It was a long time ago. I was in Bible college. I was really big into folk guitar at that time. I played it. I still do on occasion, but mostly that poor thing just sits neglected, leaning against a wall in my home. But I wrote a song, and it was the lyrics were verbatim right out of Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such, which, against such there is no law. Well, why are you bringing that up? Because having the song helped me memorize what those things were. And, well, why memorize what they were? Why, why memorize Scripture? Well, it's certainly not for the sake of pride. It's certainly not for the sake of pride. And if memorizing Scripture is of little more value to someone than just being able to roll it off the top of their head to impress others with their knowledge, well, you've really missed the mark. That is not Christian humility. 
That's just plain pride. In fact, it's the worst kind of pride. It's religious pride or what C.S. Lewis called spiritual pride. And that's, that's, that's a very bad motive. It's suboptimal at best, but it's a very bad motive. We ought to memorize Scripture so that it can be of good use to us when we need it most. And how often in life, well, the answer is very often, it's a rhetorical question, how often in life do you need to remember Scripture, especially in a moment of either temptation or in a moment of discouragement or you name it? Some kind of a battle. And the Lord brings the Scripture back to your mind. All things work together for good. Those that love God and are the called according to His purpose. It's a reminder. And when you remember these Scriptures, I know we've stepped off the text for just a moment to make this point, but when you remember these things, you can throw them in the devil's face just like Jesus did. You want a model of spiritual warfare? Look at when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He did not rely on his own cleverness or his own individual wisdom. He relied upon the Word. So, back to this uh, paragraph that begins in verse 9. This I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, and that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, That's what He wants for us. To be filled with the fruits of righteousness. What's fruit? It's a product. A tree bears it. It's the end product of the existence of a particular kind of tree. So it is in the Christian life. And I think we brought this out last week. If a tree there from Matthew chapter 7 is a metaphor for human life, and it is a metaphor for for people, then the end product is the fruits that we bear. Here, Paul, by the Spirit of God, communicates this, that it is the will of God that we be filled with the fruits of righteousness. When righteousness is at work in your life, your life will bear the fruits of righteousness, the products of righteousness. You won't be a law-breaking speed demon in traffic anymore necessarily. Now, if you've got an emergency and someone's bleeding out, sure, you'll I hope you put your pedal to the metal and get them to the ER as fast as you can. But you won't be a criminal. You won't be someone who runs amok in society bearing a, 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 bearing a terrible testimony before the world and before unbelievers about what the life of a Christian is. I'm not trying to bring anybody under condemnation if they do five miles over the speed limit, okay? But the point is, when righteousness is at work in you, your life will bear the fruits of righteousness. You won't do the things that once you did, and you will begin doing things that previously you never had any interest in doing. The fruits of righteousness. Simple. Let's move on. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. It follows the same flow, the same directional flow as all things in the Christian life. Something that is born of God in us, that then blooms and bears fruit in us, becomes profitable to us and edifying to us, but ultimately is to the glory of God who put it in us. Do you see how that works? 
That's really awesome the way that that works. All things by God and ultimately towards and for God, but it ends up benefiting every single one of us. It ends up benefiting all of us. Imagine if the church, and I mean the whole church, the entire body of Christ, imagine, you know what? No, let's, let's not make it so esoteric as that. Imagine if all earthly churches on the earth, everybody in them was completely honest all the time. Imagine if all of them had their brother and their sister's back, looked out for and prayed for them. Imagine if all of them, imagine if all of them had a burning, fiery zeal for God and holiness of life in themselves. Imagine that. We'd be unstoppable. We would, be absolutely, we would be unstoppable. We might face greater persecution or whatever, greater pushback, resistance from the world and the devil and all of that, but whatever, whatever, what would the fruit of that be? It'd be nothing to sniff at, I can tell you that. Let's move on. Next paragraph. Verse 12. But I would, you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident in my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What was he saying here? Well, we said uh, earlier in our introduction, Paul was in bonds when he wrote this letter. Again, whether it was in a prison or whether under house arrest, he was under both situations, I believe, more than once throughout his ministry. Either way, he was not a free man. And it was known that he was not a free man. Yet, that did not have him crestfallen. That did not have him discouraged where he said within himself, oh, well, I'm not a free man, so I can't do anything for the gospel. Well, we know that that's rubbish. Though in bonds, Paul it was, for whatever reason, they were still able and willing and desirous to do something for God. But we stub our toe hard enough. Oh, I can't invite anybody. <laughs> I had to get that out there and just slide that in under the rib, twist it a little bit. Okay, we'll move on. The point is that where there's a will, there's a way. There is something that we can all do no matter, no matter what our situation or our economic situation, our health situation, whatever it may be. So he says in verse 14, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident in my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul, being in bonds, was not silenced. And one of the results of that was that other brethren who were not in bonds were very, or in bonds were very much emboldened to continue to reach out with the word. They were continued, they waxed confident by Paul's bonds to be more bold to speak the word without fear. In verse 15, it takes a slightly different turn. He says, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice. Yea, and will rejoice. What's he saying there? Well, not everybody that was talking about Jesus was speaking about Jesus from a positive point of view. 
And there were people that spoke of Christ uh, with derision, with contempt, with finding fault, with trying to dismantle this, uh, this uh, relatively new, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, upstart within, uh, within the Jewish circles that then spread out to the Gentiles. There were those that were speaking of Christ, supposing, as Paul said in verse 16, to add affliction to Paul's bonds. But what they didn't realize was that thinking that they were doing the will of the devil, they were actually serving, they were inadvertently, unintentionally serving the greater good. I'm not saying they got any good reward for it. I'm just saying that that's what they were doing because God loves to take the weapons of the devil and turn them into tools to shape and mold the church and the people in it. Have we not learned that lesson by now? And thus that ties to Paul's promise to us by the Spirit. Paul's promise to us over in the book of Romans, which we shared a few minutes ago. All things work together for good. All things work together for good. For believers, for those who are the called of God, and those who love God and who are the called according to His purpose. These insincere people that sought to add affliction to the church and to the Apostle Paul here were actually, <laughs> their efforts to destroy were still taken by God and worked to build up because what does he say here in verse 18? What then? Notwithstanding in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And it's that same thing that, it's that same thing that people have discovered over and over again. Bad press is better than no press. So sure, the church was getting some bad press by insincere people that were trying to do damage to the gospel. But all they were doing was drumming up greater attention to the gospel and greater attention to the church, were they not? And so either way, Christ was preached. Did you know that someone can be out there absolutely blasting at Christianity and bad-mouthing Christ and the Holy Spirit through that can touch the heart of some sinner and they can end up getting saved. It's happened before. It can and it does and it has happened. So whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached and therefore we can rejoice as Paul did. So let's take in this last minute a quick review. Let our love abound in knowledge and in judgment so that in righteous judgment, in godly judgment, we can approve things that are excellent and understand why and understand what they mean, that we may also be sincere and without offense unto the day of Christ, that we may be filled with the fruits of righteousness and all of it for the glory and the praise of God. And let's, if persecution or limitations or illnesses, inconvenience, or bad circumstances come against us, and they all do. They all do. Life on earth is beset with these things, and it's a fact of the curse. It's a fact of life on earth. When these things come against us, don't let them stop you in your tracks concerning your life for Christ. Don't let them stop you. I'm, still, I'm reminded of that Facebook video somebody shared. It was just a video of this guy in a wheelchair with one leg pushing a vacuum cleaner in the church. And there was a caption that said something about, you know, when, when there's a will, there's a way. 
So whatever it is that comes up against you in your Christian life, don't let it halt you in your tracks. There's something that can be done for the kingdom. There is something that can be done, whatever it might be. Don't let your circumstances stop you from doing well and from living right. There's no need. And that's probably where we can bring it to a close right there. And we'll pick it up again next week in verse 19 where he says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed and that with all boldness as always so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body whether it be by life or by death. Key verse 21 right here. For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.